You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello and welcome to Explorers. This is the second and final chapter in the life of Spanish conquistador Vasco Núñez de Balboa. A couple of quick notes before we get started. First, we are going to run into a lot of names in this episode as Balboa marches up and down Panama, defeating or allying himself with the various native chieftains. I can promise you that the pronunciation of these names is really suspect. So just know that I've settled on a pronunciation, and I'll try to stick with it for the entire podcast. I really apologize if I totally mangle things up. Second, the more I get into the life of Balboa, the more convoluted it kind of becomes. As with other episodes of Explorers, just know that I've tried to focus on the most reliable information available. But there are lots of contradictions, so again, I apologize if something gets muddled. Okay, with that done, let's get down to it. Balboa had arrived in Tierra Firme as a stowaway, and within a year he was the leader of the small colony of Santa Maria de la Antigua del Darien, or Santa Maria for short. The colony was located on the Gulf of Uraba, near where modern-day Panama and Colombia meet. Santa Maria was doing pretty well for itself. The colony was steadily growing, and Balboa had instituted policies that encouraged trading with the native peoples. Thus, food and gold were coming into the coffers and the constant state of conflict that dogged earlier Spanish expeditions was mostly avoided, allowing for things to thrive. It was a solid base of operation for the Spanish, something Balboa knew was needed. But he also knew that he was going to have to expand if he wanted to acquire more treasure. The natives in the immediate vicinity around Santa Maria would be tapped out of gold sooner than later, and he needed to find more. And that underscores why the Spanish are in Darien. Profit. It is gold that they want more than anything, and it is gold that they will go searching for, and they will do anything to get it. So with the colony settled and thriving, Balboa set out to explore the immediate vicinity around Santa Maria. He defeated or struck deals with the local chieftains, or caciques as they were called, to bring peace and prosperity to the area. In 1512, Balboa received word about a powerful cacique who lived up the coast, a man named Careta. His village was supposedly overflowing with gold, and he reportedly commanded over 2,000 warriors. By the way, we are going to see this story repeat itself throughout the Americas. The city of gold, or the temple of gold, or the casica who has a village of gold, that sort of thing. Balboa and many other conquistadors will waste a tremendous amount of resources chasing such rumors. But you know, it's gold, and that's what they want. Balboa and his aide, Rodrigo Enriquez de Colmenares, moved northwest along the coast, taking 130 men in two brigantines. 
He came to Coretta's village and asked to trade for gold, but was told there was none to deal. Instead of confronting Coretta directly, Balboa pretended he wasn't interested in a fight, and he moved his forces onward. Then, with his big dog Liancito at his side, Balboa and his forces surprised Coretta's village with a night attack, defeating the natives and taking the chieftain and his family prisoner. Coretta was supposedly so impressed by Balboa that he would become his staunchest ally, and his people would be a steady source of food for Santa Maria. The chieftain would be baptized into the Christian faith, and he would even give Balboa one of his daughters as a gift. With regard to the daughter, Balboa's biographers often portray the man nobly refusing to take her as a concubine, and instead marrying the woman, who was said to have been beautiful. The woman's name was Anayansi, and she was often called an Indian princess. The story, particularly the marriage element, is dubious, probably a fabrication by writers to enhance Balboa's image. But hey, you never know. You will see a pattern with Balboa and his dealing with the indigenous peoples. He can fight them one day, then befriend them the next. But in the end, they are in his corner. With Coretta as an ally, Balboa turned inland to the area dominated by a cacica named Panca, a rival of Coretta's. Panca fled before the Spanish advance, and Balboa and his men looted his village and burned it to the ground. So next, Balboa set his sights on another powerful cacica, Comagre, a man who ruled over a large and fertile area at the base of a mountain. More than 10,000 people lived in his domain, including 3,000 warriors. Having heard about the might of the Spanish, Comagre elected to greet them as friends. He felt that the best option was to bribe the newcomers so that they would go away. Thus, he offered the Spanish gifts, including slaves and, more importantly, gold. As was custom, the Spanish began to divide up the gold. And according to legend, some of the officers were unhappy with their shares, and they began to argue. That prompted Comagre's son, Paquianco, to knock over the scales used to measure the gold, and then angrily shout, If you are so hungry for gold that you leave your lands to cause strife in those of others, I shall show you a province where you can quell this hunger. He then went on to tell Balboa and the Spanish about the other sea, beyond the mountains, and a kingdom to the south where men drank from golden goblets and ate off plates of gold. Panquianco warned Balboa that he would need at least a thousand men to defeat the tribes living on the coast of the other sea. The other sea was the first word the Europeans had heard about the Pacific Ocean, and the golden lands to the south were probably the first hints of the mighty Incan Empire in Peru. Balboa would be ensnared, and he never stopped dreaming of conquering the Golden Empire. Balboa returned to Santa Maria, where he sent letters to Don Diego Columbus, Christopher's son, and now the viceroy of the Caribbean, Mantira Firme, and requested 1,000 armed men to undertake an expedition to the lands described by Panquianco. He also sent word to the Spanish crown describing his victories and discoveries, and asking for more troops. We will touch on the ramifications of his letters to the crown later in this podcast. While Balboa waited for reinforcements to arrive, he continued to administer Santa Maria. Food was always the community's major concern, but it was at this time that Balboa learned of a plot being hatched by a group of disgruntled local chieftains. The natives, including Sumaco, who Balboa had defeated upon first arriving in the region, created a confederacy to attack Santa Maria and drive out the Spanish. However, the plot was uncovered. According to stories, it was supposedly told to him by his mistress, Anayansi. Balboa responded by seizing Anayansi's brother and torturing him for the details of the uprising. He then went on the offensive, striking out at the plotting cacicas, killing them and hundreds of their followers. 
and thus the plot was crushed before it could come to fruition. It is sometime around now that Balboa received two pieces of news. One, Don Diego Columbus was not interested in a scheme to invade the kingdom of gold to the south. He had many other things to concern himself with, and Tales of Golden Cities was not one of them. And the second bit of news was regarding Martin Fernandez de Enciso. Remember him? Well, he was causing problems for Balboa back in Spain. If you recall, Enciso was a prominent lawyer who had been the first governor of Santa Maria, only to be tossed out by the colonists due to his poor management. Upon his return to Spain, he had filed grievances with the crown regarding Balboa and his expulsion from the colony. Being that Enciso was well-connected, and Balboa was not, the House of Trade in the Spanish crown was not particularly well-disposed toward Balboa. Realizing that he needed an advocate at court, Balboa dispatched several emissaries to Spain, including Colmenares, to argue his case, as well as to make a personal appeal for more men from the king. Colmenares would reach Spain in May of 1513, but by then wheels were in motion that could not be stopped. The Spanish crown would indeed be sending more men, but they would also be sending a new governor as well. Word that a new governor was on the way reached Santa Maria that summer, and Balboa could have just waited to see how things shook out if he had wanted, but he wasn't the kind of guy to sit around and let others move the plot forward. Instead, he decided to act. On September 1st of 1513, Balboa set off with 190 hand-picked men, including Francisco Pizarro, Leoncito, and 1,000 of Careta's natives. His goal was to find the other sea, as described to him by Panquianco. Balboa first came to Panca's domain, the cacica who had fled the previous year when faced with the Spanish invaders. He fought and defeated Panca and then added him to his list of allies. Next, Balboa came to the lands of the chieftain Querica. Again, he defeated the natives, killing more than 600 warriors. Querica was killed in the battle as well. Later, it was said that Balboa unleashed his war dogs on a group of 40 or so natives, who were viewed as homosexuals or perhaps transvestites. They were considered unnatural and thus slaughtered by Balboa. These kinds of things were probably a lot more common than we know. Any sort of behavior viewed as deviant by the Spaniards was often met with hostility and violence. And this one incident helps remind us that Balboa could be extraordinarily cruel and ruthless when he wanted to be. With Querica defeated and his people now as allies, Balboa moved onward. His force came to a mountain range along the Chukanak River in late September 1513. Balboa was told by his guides that he could see the South Sea from atop the summit of this range. On September 25th, Balboa, his dog Leoncito, and a group of Spaniards, which included Pizarro, as well as some of the Allied natives, climbed to the top of the mountain and glimpsed a massive body of water in the distance. Balboa and his men knelt down on the ground and gave thanks to God. They were the first Europeans to see the mighty Pacific Ocean. Andres de Vera, the expedition's chaplain, reported that they erected a stone altar and engraved crosses on the bark of the trees with their swords as well as the name of the King of Spain. With the ocean in sight, Balboa and his army pushed onward. They confronted yet another chieftain, a man named Chiapas, and as before, they defeated him and took his gold. After a reconnaissance force confirmed the way to the ocean, Balboa led 26 men to the coast. The legend says that Balboa raised his arms, his sword in one hand, and a standard with the image of the Virgin Mary in the other, and walked knee-deep into the ocean. He then claimed possession of the new sea and all adjoining lands in the name of the Spanish crown. The location he had emerged was a bay, which he dubbed the Gulf of San Miguel. The date was September 29, 1513. 
So Balboa had found his South Sea, as he called it, but let's not forget his goal, to find the kingdom of gold spoken of by Panquianco. To that end, he continued to explore the area. He would tame a pair of regions under the rule of the Casicas Ducia and Tumaxo, gathering gold as well as pearls. The Gulf of San Miguel opens into the Pacific Ocean. From there, there are several large islands, islands that the natives said were rich in pearls. Hence, they would be called the Pearl Islands, a name that sticks to this day. Balboa would receive so many pearls from the natives, he reportedly sent 250 pounds of them back to the King of Spain upon his return to Santa Maria. Laden down with treasures, Balboa elected to return to Santa Maria. He decided to take a different route for his return journey, fighting numerous battles along the way. The Spanish had so much loot with them, they neglected to carry enough supplies, and starvation threatened the expedition at times. But Balboa and his men would reach the Caribbean in December of 1513, and then finally reach Santa Maria on January 19, 1514. Balboa reportedly had more than 100,000 Castellanos, or Dublas, in gold, not to mention the pearls. He immediately sent a representative back to Spain to bring the crown the royal fifth, and to announce to the world the discovery of the new ocean. With Balboa in Santa Maria in early 1514, we need to head back to Spain, specifically to the beginning of 1513. Remember, Enciso has been railing against Balboa ever since returning home, and he had the ear of Bishop Fonseca and the House of Trade. Many had soured on Balboa, believing the colony of Darien was on the precipice of collapse. It was in this atmosphere that a letter arrived from Balboa, describing the recent victories and conquests, as well as the lands of Darien. The letter was dated January 20th, 1513. Balboa wrote the following. In this province of Darien, we have discovered many and very rich mines. There is gold in great quantity. We have discovered 20 rivers, and there are altogether 30 which have gold that stream out of a sierra two leagues from this villa. So now he is boasting about the gold in the region, and Anciso is likely confirming many of those points, saying that Balboa has wronged him out of such treasures. But then Balboa added the following. There are in the Sierras certain chiefs who have gold that grows like maize in their huts, and they have it in their baskets. They say that all the rivers in the Sierras have gold, and there are big nuggets on a large scale. So this was likely the story of the Incas, who lived in the mountains to the south. Unfortunately, Balboa's overly enthusiastic descriptions would backfire on him because the Spanish crown and the Board of Trade became enthralled with the idea of rivers of gold. Just like the conquistadors who seemed to chase any legend that made its way to them, the idea of ships filled with gold streaming back to Spain from the New World was immensely enticing. The area of Darien was renamed Castilla de Oro, and the crown made a commitment to exploit the region. To that end, the king appointed a new governor of Darien, because such an important region could not be entrusted to someone as questionable as Balboa. The man he selected was Pedro Arias Avia, more commonly known as Pedrarius. Pedrarius was an odd choice, as he was older, well into his 60s, some say as old as 70, and exploration was usually a young man's business. But he was the choice, and he was to organize a large force and proceed to Darien. Efforts were made by Balboa's friends and allies to derail the appointment of Pedrarius, but Archbishop Fonseca was firmly in the man's corner. So enthused was the Spanish crown about the prospects of the expedition, it would be the first such journey that they would actually invest in since sending Columbus West in 1492. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust 
into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, explorers. It's Matt. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Outside In is the award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio that allows you to do just that. From explorations of nature to important conversations about climate change and sustainability, award-winning reporter and host Nate Hedgie covers all kinds of topics related to our world. They cover fascinating topics, like the wild horses of the American West and why they are so divisive, little-known tales from the world of competitive dog sled racing, and the disappearing dunes of coastal Oregon that inspired the desert planet of Arrakis. Through in-depth reporting and narrative storytelling, Outside In meets listeners wherever they are to take them on the journey. It's not just for thru-hikers and conservationists. It is a podcast for anyone who is curious about the natural world. Listen to new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Pedraeus would eventually assemble around 1,500 to 2,000 men, mostly noblemen, often hildagos like Balboa, who saw a quick way to make a fortune. The men were soldiers, well-armed and experienced in the field. There would also be cannon and war horses, as well as slaves and servants, not to mention craftsmen and priests. The expedition would finally leave Spain on April 11, 1514. The fleet carried provisions for 18 months. Some key people in the expedition included Juan de Quevedo, who would be the first bishop of the colony, Isabel de Bobadilla, who was Pedrarias' wife and a formidable woman in her own right, and let's not forget our old friend Martin Fernandez de Enciso, the former mayor of the colony and Balboa's enemy. Other people in the ranks who would one day make their mark on history included Hernando de Soto, who would go on to explore North America and become the first European to cross the Mississippi River, Gonzalo Fernandez de Ovedo, who would one day be a famous historian. And then there was also Juan Serrano, a pilot in the fleet who, as you would know if you had listened to our Ferdinand Magellan podcast, would play a critical role in the first voyage around the world. The fleet arrived in Colombia on June 12, 1514, and it would reach Santa Maria at the end of the month. The newcomers found Santa Maria to be a thriving community of about 500 Spanish colonists and 1,500 natives. The area around the colony was at relative peace with the local populace. Crops had been planted, and Balboa's expedition the previous year had brought in wealth to many. Balboa appears to have accepted Pedrarius, not that he could have done much about the new governor. It was a royal appointment, and the new governor had a formidable armed force at his disposal. Any sort of resistance to the man's power would have been foolish. Balboa quickly provided the new governor with a rundown of the lay of the land. He gave Pedrarius listings of the treasure the colony had acquired, the caciques he had subjugated, and the opportunities that lay ahead, that sort of thing. And while the transfer of power went smoothly, the truth is Santa Maria was in for trouble. The colony was just not prepared to double its population. They did not have the homes or facilities or supplies for so many newcomers. Also, much of the food brought by the fleet had rotted and was worthless. The new colonists, many of them respectable and high-born, resented the shabby huts and the rudimentary living arrangements. 
and they quickly learned that there were not streams that you could just throw a net into and retrieve nuggets of gold. They would actually have to work hard to acquire their fortune. Also, the newcomers were ill-equipped for the tropical environment of Panama. Oviedo, the historian, wrote that men arrived in Darien wearing silk shirts. So the existing colonists quickly came to resent the newcomers, seeing them as soft and spoiled dandies who hadn't come prepared for the real world, and who were now upsetting the delicate balance the colony had struck with the natives. Food shortages quickly emerged, and the new colonists turned on the natives, sacking their homes and stealing whatever meager food they possessed. Starvation and disease set in, and the results were devastating. It was said that in a single month, more than 700 men died from disease and hunger. The lucky settlers were able to leave the colony, returning to Spain or one of the Caribbean islands. To help alleviate the overcrowding and food shortages, Pedurius sent his men out on excursions against the local caciques, allowing them to gather gold and food, and thus leaving fewer mouths to feed in Santa Maria. But before we get into those excursions, let's take a deeper dive into the developing Balboa-Pedrarius rivalry. There is a lot of conflicting information from this time period, but most historians agree that Balboa and Pedrarius did not like or respect one another. Balboa saw Pedrarius as an old, arrogant blowhard who didn't understand what it took to survive in this harsh environment. He was coming to Darien to take advantage of the hard work he, Balboa, had done, and Balboa resented it. As for Pedrarius, he was an aristocrat to the core. To him, titles and position were immensely important. He viewed Balboa as an insolent usurper, a man barely above a commoner, a man who had treated his betters, Nacusa and Enciso, horribly. Ah, yes, Enciso. Remember the former mayor of the colony? Well, Enciso had come with Pedrarius, and he wanted revenge. To that end, charges were formally filed against Balboa not long after Pedrarius arrived, and he was arrested. The accusations included insubordination toward the Spanish crown, the usurping of Enciso from his rightful office, as well as the murder of Diego de Nacusa, the colony's first governor. Gaspar de Espinosa, a lawyer who had come with Pedreas, would be the trial's judge. In the end, Balboa was acquitted of the murder charge, but he was fined over 1.5 million Maravedis, reparations for income Enciso had lost for being unjustly forced out as the colony's leader, as well as punitive damages. The Maravetti was a small Spanish silver coin. To understand how much of that was worth, know that the entire expedition conducted by Magellan to go around the world will be financed with just under 9 million Maravettis. So this was not an insignificant fine. Balboa would be free, but he would pretty much lose everything that he had earned. As noted, during this time frame, late 1514 and early 1515, Pedrarius began to send out his newly arrived conquistadors on missions to acquire treasure. Generally, there would be 50 to 200 Spanish soldiers who would strike out in some direction. They would ravage any place that they saw, steal gold and pearls, and enslave those that they could. The latter item, enslaving the natives, became more and more common with Pedrarius at the helm of the colony. The Caribbean islands, such as Hispaniola and Jamaica, were in constant need of slaves, as the island's natives were dying off rapidly due to diseases brought from Europe. These excursions sent out by Pedrarius were met with mixed success. Yes, they brought in gold and pearls, but it also helped to destroy the general goodwill that had been established under Balboa. And soon there would be full-scale conflicts in progress in many regions as the natives waged guerrilla wars against the Spanish. One of the forays sent out was under the command of Enciso, the former mayor. He was dispatched with 200 men to an area called Senu, in the area of modern-day Cartagena. 
When the local natives wouldn't trade their gold to him, he turned to Forrest. The result was a disaster. Much of the contingent was killed as the natives used poison arrows, which took a heavy toll on the Spanish. After his failed stint as a military commander, Enciso would return to Spain. But, surprisingly, he would actually do something of note later in life. In 1518, he published a book called The Sum of Geography. The book was the first Spanish-language account of the discoveries of the New World, as earlier ones had been published in Latin. The book went into depth regarding the art and science of navigation and provided details about the lands that had been discovered in the Americas, detailing the natives and animals and plants. So, well done, Martin Fernandez de Enciso. You did a nice job there. Now back to our story. So Balboa wasn't doing so great in Santa Maria. He had been basically put on the sidelines by Pedrarius. The colony had been split into rival camps, the old-timers who supported Balboa and the newcomers who owed their allegiance to Pedrarius. But there are some good things to report as well. The new bishop of the colony, Quevedo, became an ally to Balboa. He seems to have recognized that the colony needed a man with his qualities, and for a time, Quevedo would act as a mediator of sorts between Balboa and Pedrarius. Also, there had been some changes back in Spain. Remember, Balboa had had a successful campaign the previous year. Shortly after Pedrarius had left for the New World, the reports of his discovery of the Pacific had reached Spain, and this likely included the Royal Fifth, chests of gold and, as we mentioned earlier, 250 pounds of pearls. Suddenly, Balboa was looking like he was doing a pretty sweet job. This, of course, made for an uncomfortable situation. The king had already dispatched a new governor, He could not just recall him a few months later without reason. So how would the crown recognize Balboa and his accomplishments without insulting Pedraeus? It was a delicate situation. The king would address it by conferring a new title on Balboa, Adelantato of the South Seas. And Adelantato was like a governor, only the region he ruled was considered hostile. Despite the new title, Balboa still had to report to Pedraeus, but the governor was instructed to show Balboa the greatest respect and to consult him on all matters pertaining to the conquest and the ruling of the colony. As with so many attempts to satisfy everyone, the new title and decree would satisfy no one. The governor of Darien was furious at the news. How could Balboa be considered a governor of a place he had only been to a single time? And it was insulting that Pedrarius, a true nobleman, would be forced to show any sort of deference to a man like Balboa. Pedrarius reportedly wanted to suppress the information, but others, including the bishop, insisted that the news be shared. For Balboa, the new title didn't really change the fact that he was still stuck under Pedrarius' thumb, although it did give him and his allies leverage. Recognizing that a peace between the two men was advantageous to all parties, the bishop and Pedrarius' wife, Isabel de Bobadilla, came up with a plan to get the two rivals to work together, and the plan was a marriage. Balboa was technically a nobleman, even if an uncouth one. The plan put forth would be for Balboa to marry Maria de Peñalosa, Pedrarius' daughter. The young woman was in Spain, so the marriage would have to happen by proxy. Now, arranged marriages were, of course, common in this age. For Balboa, he would be marrying into a prominent family. Even if he didn't like Pedrarius, he certainly would have recognized the advantages to the arrangement, and it would mean he could go adventuring again. For Pedrarius, it got the most popular and able guy in the colony on his side and it quashed any idea Balboa and his supporters may have had about usurping Pedrarius' authority. The deal would likely have never have happened if it hadn't been for Pedrarius' wife, Isabel. She seems to have been the one to knock some sense in both men's heads, just when they needed it. So the marriage was enough to solidify an alliance between the two rivals, at least for now. 
With Balboa out of the doghouse, he became part of the steady stream of military excursions sent out by Pedrarius in this time. It should be noted that these expeditions had several effects. Most notably, they pacified the region by essentially killing off, driving off, or deporting much of the indigenous population. Combine that with disease, because now the natives are being introduced to such deadly illnesses as smallpox and measles, and the population was reduced dramatically in these years. Balboa's next action was to explore a region to the south of Santa Maria called Dubaibi. Balboa, it seems, had been told about an idol of pure gold that was still worshipped by the local natives. An idol that, of course, was in a golden temple as well. Because, you know, you just can't have enough gold in these tales. Never one to pass up a legend of gold, Balboa, along with 150 men, set off to find the golden temple. Perhaps this was one of the first stories of the legendary El Dorado. Who knows? But as you can imagine, Balboa came back empty-handed. But no golden idol was going to stop him from dreaming of his ultimate goal, the western coast of Panama and the legendary city of gold in the mountains. In 1517 or 18, Balboa was finally granted permission by Pedrarius to conduct an excursion to the South Sea. He was, after all, technically the ruler of the area, so Pedrarius couldn't keep him away forever. It was what Balboa had been waiting for for several years. Balboa put together a force of about 300 men and headed up the coast to the fledging settlement of Akla. It would serve as a good jumping-off point to the western side of the Isthmus. Here, Balboa would cut down timber. His intention was to haul it over the mountains so that he could build ships. He felt that the timber on the Caribbean side was much better than that on the western side. So hundreds of trees were felled, readied, and then shipped overland to the western side of Panama. Hundreds of slaves reportedly died hauling the timber. When Balboa finally reached the Pacific with his precious cargo, he proceeded to construct two brigantines. He had intended to build more, but much of the wood he had brought had rotted in the passage overland. Balboa would sail the ships up and down the coast and out to the Pearl Islands, exploring, gathering gold and pearls, and searching for clues about the great empire to the south. He also appeared to have been looking for a good location to establish a new settlement. Balboa recognized that if he was going to set out to the south, he would need a staple base of operation. He would need a place to muster an army, build ships, and probe the region efficiently and systematically. Hence, he needed a settlement. Also, by setting up a new colony, he could get himself out from under the eyes and authority of Pedrarius. The two had operated reasonably well for the past year or two, but Balboa likely chafed under his father-in-law's thumb. He was the ruler of the South Seas. His destiny was here. With all that in mind, we come to the final chapter in our tale, the exact details are fuzzy, but what we need to know is that, at this time, Pedrarius seems to have decided that he had had enough of Balboa. We don't know exactly why he came to this conclusion. Some historians suspect that the man was always looking for a way to rid him of the upstart, and others feel that there may have been a specific incident that sparked Pedrarius to plot against his son-in-law. Perhaps it was a bit of both, but we'll have fun and speculate a little. Theory 1. Balboa has gone to the Pacific Ocean. Pedrarius had never really fully trusted him, and he begins to get reports of Balboa's actions in the West. Pedrarius becomes worried that Balboa, if successful, will supplant him. Balboa was gathering gold and pearls from relatively untouched areas. He was gaining wealth and power again. What if he actually did find the city of gold? Where would Pedrarius sit in the eyes of the crown if that happened? And let's not forget, Balboa had rid himself of two bosses before, so why not another? Also, Balboa's ally, Bishop Quevedo, had recently left the colony, heading for Spain. 
Pedraeus had not exactly been a model governor. Balboa had given the man a prosperous and peaceful realm, only to see it deteriorate within a year. The rivers of gold had never materialized, and Pedraeus had gained a reputation for being arrogant and cruel. Balboa and others had written directly to the king, asking for investigations into his mismanagement of the region. Thus, Pedraeus's faults had not gone unnoticed by the crown. Also, we need to know that King Ferdinand had died in 1516. His son Charles was now on the throne. Charles had no special allegiance to Pedraeus. He might decide to appoint his own man, and what better person than Balboa, who was primed for success? Perhaps Pedraeus saw the writing on the wall. With Quevedo heading to Spain, the bishop was not likely to paint a pretty picture of his regime. It might be only a matter of time before he is replaced. To that end, Pedraeus went after Balboa. Another theory is that Pedraeus suspected Balboa was going to set up his own independent kingdom on the western side of Panama. This, of course, would be treason. Still another theory revolves around the native princess, the daughter of the Casica Careta, Anayansi. There are some tales, likely contrived, but we're gossiping, so what the heck, that Balboa was going to take the princess to the new colony on the South Sea. I'm sure that some of the tales have him setting up his own kingdom, and others have him just living with her as his wife in his own province. Either way, this would have been a grave insult to Pedraeus, whose daughter was now married to Balboa, even if the two had never met. Feeding on this theory, other stories say that a friend of Balboa's, Andres Garabito, had fallen for the princess Anayansi. The man had then started the rumors about Balboa betraying Pedraeus as a way to anger the governor, who would then rid Garabito of Balboa so that he could get the girl for himself. Perhaps it was something completely different. Again, we don't really know. The logical answer is that Pedraeus was worried about his position. And to back up that theory, you should know that the Spanish crown and the House of Trade actually were planning on replacing Pedraeus as governor of Darien. The crown would, in 1519 or 1520, appoint Lope de Sosa to take over as governor of Darien. So Pedraeus's fears that he was in danger of losing his job were very real. Again, no matter the reasons, Pedraeus sprung his trap on Balboa in either December of 1518 or January of 1519. Pedraeus recalled Balboa from the west coast of Panama to Acla, the settlement up the coast from Santa Maria. Balboa went, along with several companions, among them Andres Garabito, the man who supposedly had designs on Anayansi. On the way, the group was met by Francisco Pizarro, who, under orders from Pedraeus, arrested a lot of them. Balboa and six of his companions were taken to Acla and put on trial. It is suggested that the trial was conducted in Acla because Balboa would have had too many friends willing to help him out if it had been done in Santa Maria. The men were charged with treason, accused of attempting to usurp Pedraeus' power and set up their own kingdom. The crimes committed against Enciso and Nicusa were tossed in for good measure. Of course, Balboa and his companions denied the charges. Amongst those called to testify were Garabito, Balboa's friend. He confirmed the charges that Pedraeus had brought against Balboa, helping seal Balboa's fate. Garabito's betrayal of his old friend seems to have fed speculation as to his motives. Perhaps he did have designs on the princess, but in the end it may have been just a simple way to escape the gallows. Garabito would give damning testimony in exchange for his life. Or maybe Garabito was in on it from the start, and he got a nice payoff for his part in the farce. Balboa and his companions were convicted and sentenced to death. Garabito would have his sentence commuted for cooperating with the prosecution. One other of Balboa's friends, a man named Rodrigo Perez, was forgiven because he was a priest. Balboa demanded that he be taken to Spain or the Council of Indies for an appeal. 
As a Spanish officer of the crown, he should have been given those rights, but he was denied them by Pedrarius. Gaspar de Espinosa, the prosecutor in the case, recommended that the death sentence be commuted due to Balboa's service to the crown, but again, this was not going to happen. Pedrarius needed Balboa out of the way. Any delay would be a risk, as an appeal could easily have led to Balboa's release and Pedrarius's downfall. There are many stories about what Balboa said at his trial. They tend to have a proud and unbroken Balboa denying all the charges, while Pedrarius skulks in the background afraid to show his face. All of that is pure speculation. We only know the final results. Balboa and four of his friends were to have their heads cut off. The exact date of the execution is disputed. January 1st, January 12th, January 15th, I have read them all. But it really doesn't matter. In the end, the five men were marched up the gallows and executed. Balboa's head was placed on a pole and set out for all to see for several days. It was January of 1519, and Vasco Nunez de Balboa, the discoverer of the Pacific Ocean, was dead. He was 44 or 45 years old. Before we do a final assessment of Balboa and his legacy, let's take a look at some of our key players. Our friend Pedreras was set to be replaced by the new governor, Lope de Sosa. But Sosa would die shortly after reaching Santa Maria. He had been sick for most of the journey across the Atlantic, so if you were thinking that Pedreras had killed him, it was a good thought, but it really wasn't necessary. With the help of his wife Isabel, Pedreras would get his appointment as governor extended. Pedreras recognized Balboa's plans for a colony on the western shore of Panama was a smart move. In late 1519, he would lay the groundwork for the founding of Panama City. The province's capital would be moved there in 1524. The settlement of Santa Maria would be abandoned. Pedrarius would eventually be replaced as governor of Panama in 1526. In that same year, he backed out of an agreement with Francisco Pizarro that would have made him a major player in the conquest of the Inca Empire. Bad move there. That would have meant lots and lots of money. He would then be named governor of Nicaragua in 1527, and he would live there until his death in 1531. His reputation as a cruel and cunning and unscrupulous man has survived to this day. Francisco Pizarro would go on to become one of the most famous conquistadors, invading Peru and defeating the mighty Inca Empire. His life will make a wonderful podcast. So many others in this story just sort of fade away. We never hear again from the Indian princess, Anayansi, or Balboa's betrayer, Garibito. And that leaves us with Vasco Nunez de Balboa. From a historical perspective, Balboa did something we remember him for. He was the first European to see the Pacific Ocean. The ramifications of his discovery were enormous. It set the stage for Magellan's trip around the world, as well as Pizarro's invasion of Peru, not to mention the whole colonization and exploration of the whole west coast of North and South America. Panama would become a key trade location, as it was quickly understood that a continuous naval route to the Far East wasn't essential. It was easier for ships to sail from the Indies to Panama and then have their goods transferred overland to the Caribbean and then sent on to Europe than to try and sail through the Strait of Magellan. And with the conquest of Peru and then the discovery of the rich silver mines in the region, Panama would be the location where the treasure was shipped to before being sent overland to the ports in the Caribbean and then transferred to Spain. All that stuff is great. If that's all we knew about Balboa, he would have a place in history books. But I have to admit that I kind of liked Balboa the person and the strategist, despite his darker qualities. While we don't really know that much about him, he sort of embodies the myth of the frontiersman, the guy who braved the unknown world to forge out something new and bold. 
He was smart and tough and resilient. And he was not a single-minded fool like so many of the would-be conquerors who came to the New World and disappeared from history. Balboa had a knack for working with people. He seemed to know how to adjust to a situation. And you have to admire his decision-making. He thought long-term, which allowed him and those around him to thrive and succeed. Had he not died, it probably would have been Balboa and not Pizarro who would have ventured south and attacked the Incan Empire. But again, we will never know. One other thing I have to add about Balboa was that in addition to being the prototype of a frontiersman, he was also the prototype of a conquistador, that is, a man who came to conquer. He was brutal, even savage. The Spanish are often portrayed as men lusting for gold, and Balboa is no exception. Even his supporters admit to it. Thousands would die under his sword. The region's native population was devastated by the war and disease Balboa and his men brought. And let's not forget the slavery the conquerors forced on many. For hundreds of years, men like him would come, kill, and enslave, and take what they desired. Some of this, I realize, is the times the man lived. But it is a sad and terrible legacy in many ways. Balboa led a fascinating life, but it was not really a noble one. It was one dominated by violence and avarice, even if there were many amazing events involved. My final thought on Balboa is that I don't think we will ever really know his full story. The truth is very elusive at times. The noble, brave, charismatic soldier, his loyal dog, the beautiful, savage Indian princess, the weaselly, incompetent bureaucrats, a tragic ending. In some ways, that's too perfect of a tale. But you know what? We don't know anything more, so it works for me. I can live with it. Today, Balboa is remembered by not just the ocean that he came upon, but several other cool things as well. There's a city in Panama named after him, and San Diego sports the historic Balboa Park. There's a lunar crater named after Balboa, and there's even a Panamanian lager named Balboa Beer. And then there's the most famous of all the Balboas, Rocky Balboa. Ironically, the Italian-American hero of the various Rocky movies. So that wraps up our two-part series on Vasco Nunez de Balboa, the discoverer, we have to always say discoverer in air quotes, of the Pacific. I hope you enjoyed this tale of one of the first of the great Spanish conquistadors. Please check out explorerspodcast.com. There are some links to some reading materials, maps, plus some cool photos. Thanks again for listening. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my name is Matt host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.